Amen. Hey, for those of you wondering, inquiring minds want to know, uh, if you wonder what this thing is, this handsome guy is called a Demodex. Turn to somebody and say, hey, this is on my face. (laughs) Yeah, because it really is, folks. It's called a face mite. And you may not see it, but it's there. In fact, there's probably quite a few of them there. This is a face mite. It's on your face, especially on your forehead, your nose, your chin. And here's the cool news. Did you know he's always going to be on your face until the day you die? Isn't that cool? Now, for those of you sitting there like, what in the world are you talking about? Or like, come on, Pastor Billy. Now you're really pulling our leg. Uh-uh. Watch this. This is crazy. Hey, you've got something on your face. Well, more like living in your face. Can't see them? Here, we'll show you. Researchers just use a little glue. Don't try this at home. When that thin layer of skin comes off, it takes some tiny hair follicles, that barely visible peach fuzz, with it. Those follicles that came out look like a miniature forest. And inside some of them, that's a face mite. They've got eight little legs, because they're actually arachnids, related to ticks and spiders. Yep, you almost certainly have dozens of these stowaways on you right now and don't even know it. They spend their days tucked right inside our hair follicles, next to the hair. All cozy. See that yellow stuff? It's sebum, that greasy oil your skin makes to protect itself from drying out. That's what face mites eat. When you're asleep, they climb out to the surface and mate before crawling back into your pores to lay their eggs. Now that you know that, you never have to be lonely again. Sleep well tonight. I'm here for you. Sweet dreams. That's right. Now, folks, I, I, I came across that first, obviously, and I don't know about you, but how many of you guys would say that's some of the freakiest news you ever heard in your life? You got these things crawling all over your face. I don't care how many times they said you scrub that thing, it ain't coming off, right? They're with you for the journey, right? Okay. <laughs> but believe it or not, as freaky as that is, and that's freaky, man, how many of you guys going to go home and try to scrub it off, right? You know <laughs> I'm telling you, give it up, right? But as freaky as that is, folks, believe it or not, I think I've discovered something even freakier than that. And it's this. It's not just the news that you just learned about Demodex splattering all over your face. It's the news, if you can believe this, people today rejecting God's grace through Jesus Christ, and they're going to face the seven-year tribulation. And they didn't have to. And the reason why that's freaky is because what are you flirting with? This is not a joke, Okay. Something way worse than a demodex on your face is coming, the seven-year tribulation. It is the worst time in the history of mankind. It is not a joke. You don't want to flirt with that, okay? But that's why it's freaky, because people are. And that's why we're going to continue in our study, Are You Ready for the Rapture? Helping people get ready for this event. You don't want to be left behind 
uh, and deal with the seven-year tribulation, okay? Uh, and so far, we've seen five things about the rapture to help people get ready for it. We saw the basis of the rapture, the importance of the rapture, the purpose of the rapture, the reward for the rapture. And then the last four times, if you were here, we saw the timing of the rapture. And there we saw the Bible may not give us the exact day nor the hour of the rapture, but the Bible is very, very emphatic that it must happen prior to the seven-year tribulation. And that's not just, you know, you guys are guilty of escapism and you just don't want to have to suffer. No, that's what the scripture teaches. We looked at the biblical evidence of that truth at the unknown hour, the absence of the church, the location of the church, the promises to the church, and last time, the removal of the church. And there we saw yet even more evidence, two more evidences that the church has to be gone Biblically, before the seven-year tribulation begins. We saw that first with the Thessalonica believers. Remember that? And Paul says to the church there, he says that the restraining influence has to be removed before the Antichrist can make his appearance and the seven-year tribulation can begin. Well, guess what? We saw biblically, guess what? We're the restraining influence, the church. So therefore, we have to be gone before that takes place. Then we saw the example of previous believers. You know, people like Noah and Lot and especially Enoch, right? were biblical examples because people say, oh, you, there's no evidence for the pre-trib position uh, that God would spare some people a judgment and other people have to go through it. And that's, that's an anomaly. No, it's not an anomaly. It's all over the scripture. It's, it's a pattern of behavior. God saved Noah. God saved Lot. God even took Enoch with him, transferred him, even without experiencing death. What's that? That's a perfect model of the pre-trib position, except the Bible says it's not going to happen uh, with one man. Next time it happens, it'll be a bunch of people. Everybody who's called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to experience what Enoch experienced. There's nothing weird about it, and it just so happens to fit. Guess what? You leave prior to the judgment, the pre-trib scenario. Okay? That's what the Scripture teaches. But that's not all. I'm still preaching on Pastor Bobby, so guess what? And there is. Thank you for your vote of confidence. The sixth biblical evidence that the rapture takes place prior to the seven-year tribulation is the purpose of the seven-year tribulation itself. And this one blows me away. Because if you read the Bible, which I highly recommend, uh, you're going to see that God tells us not just that there is a seven-year tribulation, but he tells us the purpose of the seven-year tribulation. And when you look at the purpose of the seven-year tribulation, you're going to see very clearly that it has nothing to do with the church. And so no wonder all these weeks have been seeing that the church has nothing to do with it is because we're not part of the purpose as defined by God. And what we're going to see is why is there a seven-year tribulation? It's for two audiences. Number one, the Jewish people. God is going to fulfill his promises to the Jewish people, reserve back a remnant. And the second audience is the unbelieving, wicked, rebellious Gentile nations. They're going to experience the wrath of God. That's it. It has nothing to do with the church. But as always, don't take my word for it. Let's listen to God. So open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. And the reason why I want to go here is because, biblically, this is where the seven-year tribulation is first mentioned and dealt with in the Bible, not the book of Revelation, 2,600 years ago. It's a prophecy of the uh, uh, Daniel, prophet Daniel, and he mentions not only why it's seven years, okay, and w- but the purpose of it and the audience of it, and it has nothing to do with the church. But let's take a look here. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20 through 27, as we read God's holy word, says this. While uh, Daniel speaking, he says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, who? There's your first clue right there. Who's the audience? And making my request to the Lord my God uh, for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man who I had seen earlier in vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. And he instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I've now come to give you insight and understanding. And as soon as you began to pray, okay, an answer was given, 
uh, which I've come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Here it is. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there'll be what? Seven sevens and 62 sevens. So 62 and seven equals 69. For those of you hooked on math, praise God. Okay. And of course, what happened after the 69th and when the decree was uh, issued by Cyrus, we know historically when that happened. And 69 of these weeks or groups of seven or years, right? Uh, What happened? Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem where the people, the Jewish people rejected him. But there's still one seven out there. That's called the seven-year tribulation, the final week of the 70th week prophecy. Well, let's continue on. So that's there, the 69. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens and the seven, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler uh, who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. And listen, he will confirm a covenant with many. Who's the context? The Jewish people, Israel. He, as we're going to see, is defined as the Antichrist. It makes it very abundantly clear, right? So he will make a covenant with many for one seven. So that's what starts the seven-year tribulation, that final week. Uh, that the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel. And how do you know it's the Antichrist? We'll keep reading. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. You may be seated if you can. And again, the one who commits the abomination of desolation, the Bible is very clear about that, is who? The Antichrist, right? So here we see, if you've ever wondered, why is it a seven-year tribulation? Inquiry minds want to know, why is it not a five-year? Why not a two-year? How come it's not 192 years? Why is it exactly seven? Well, here you go. This is where it occurs. The book of Daniel is where it first starts. The seven-year tribulation is the final seven of the 77's prophecy when basically God wraps it up and he finishes and fulfills all his promises to the Jewish people, including that the anointed one, the Messiah, from the lineage of David would rule and reign over the uh, planet. And obviously that hasn't happened yet. I don't know if you've paid attention to the news. Doesn't look like Jesus is reigning right now. So obviously you're dealing with something yet future. That's at the end of the seven-year tribulation. After this final seven, he sets up the millennial kingdom. You and I, the church, get to be a part of that, right? But that's why, why it's a seven years, that final week of the seven. But here's my point in bringing it up. It's not just important to know it's a seven year and why it's seven and not 192. If you look at the text here, And this is where it first occurs, not in Revelation. This is where the very beginning of the news of a seven-year tribulation begins, right? And so if I want to find out the purpose, then you need to go where it starts, right? Common sense. That's what we're doing. Now, if you look at the, uh, and examine the text here of this final week of the seven-week prophecy, the seven-year tribulation, you're going to see it has absolutely nothing to do with the church. In fact, it can't have anything to do with the church, and we're going to see why. And the first reason is the verbiage, right? How many guys realize that when you interpret the Bible, you don't read into it what you want it to say, right? It's called eisegesis. That's that's not how you interpret the scripture. You're reading into it what you want it to say. No, no, no. The correct response is exegesis as an exit. God reads out to us what he wants us to believe. 
And that's what we say, sola scriptura. The Bible alone determines our faith and practice, right? All right, so let's read the Bible. Let's allow God speak to us in the context. Who is this final week about? Does it have anything to do with the church? Absolutely not, right? It's dealing with the Jewish people, right? And let's take a look at that verbiage. And again, we just read it, but let's, let's break it down. Verse 20 says, my sin and the sin of my people, Israel. Who's speaking and who's he talking about? Who's my people? Contextually, it's Daniel and who? The people of Israel, right? Verse 20, making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill. What's that? Daniel and Jerusalem is where that occurs. Verse 22, Daniel, I have now come to give you, right? Gabriel speaking to him. And who's he talking to? Daniel, who's a Jewish person. Verse 24, 70 sevens are decreed for what? Your people, not the church, and your holy city. Who's he talking about? The Jewish people and Jerusalem. Verse 25, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, not New York City, not LA, Jerusalem. Again, is the context there. Verse 26, the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. What's he talking about? Jerusalem and the rebuilt Jewish temple. And he says it again here, verse 27. And on a wing of the temple, he, the Antichrist, will set up an abomination that causes desolation. Where is that at? It's in Jerusalem and dealing with the rebuilt Jewish temple. So here's my question. We're just reading the Bible, which last time I checked is a good thing to do. We're allowing the Bible to speak out to us which is normal, common sense, biblical interpretation. My question is this, where's the church in any of this? Nowhere. Not, not even close. Why? Because, listen, the verbiage clearly reveals it's all about the Jewish people, Jerusalem, the rebuilt Jewish temple, not the church. In fact, he even clearly states there, right in the middle of the 77s there, including the final seven, are decreed for what? What's he say there? He's very emphatic about it. Your people, Daniel's people, the Jewish people, not the church. This is the, right at the core of the seven-year tribulation when it first occurs in the scripture. He tells you right out of the gates in the context who it's about. It's not the church. It's about the Jewish people. So why do you keep trying to squeeze the church in a time frame that has nothing to do with the church? And we're just getting started. It gets even more abundantly clear than that. The second reason why the final week of Daniel's 70th week prophecy, the seven-year tribulation has nothing to do with the church is the timing. Now, when Daniel wrote down the words of this prophecy, uh, most biblical scholars would put that about 536 to 530 BC, okay? And again, what's contained in here? The news of the 70th week, i.e. the seven-year tribulation, right? So here's my question. Where was the church when Daniel wrote down the words of this prophecy dealing with the seven-year tribulation? Nowhere. We weren't even in existence yet. In fact, you, for those of you once again hooked on math, we didn't come into existence until Acts chapter 2, which from this... Prophecy is about 570 years later. So stir all that together and ask yourself this next question. So uh, uh, how could Daniel be referring to the church in this passage dealing with the seven-year tribulation, the final week of Daniel's seventh-week prophecy, when the church wasn't even in existence yet? Uh, the answer is he can't. So why do you keep trying to squeeze the church in here? It doesn't make sense. And not only does it make sense, you're making the scripture say something it doesn't, which the last time I checked is called false teaching. You're supposed to allow God to speak out to us. Now, on top of that, the New Testament tells us that the knowledge of the church was not only considered a mystery, musterion in the Greek, but he spe- the Bible says they specifically, the Old Testament writers, including Daniel, had zero knowledge of the church. Let me give you just a couple of those passages, right? Romans 16, 25. Now, to him who is able to establish you by my gospel, Paul says, and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the what? Mystery, what, what, what about this mystery? Hidden for long ages past. You know, like the Old Testament. 
right? Ephesians 3, uh, 2 through 5, Paul says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the what? Mystery made known to me, Paul, by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this then, you will understand my, uh, and, and able to understand my insight into the mystery of what? Christ, which is not, listen, which was not made known to men in other generations. How do you get around that? As it has now been revealed uh, by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets, i.e. in the New Testament. This mystery is that what? Through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, i.e. the church, and shares together in the promise in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.32, this is a profound mystery. Oh, if only I knew the mystery. What's the mystery? If I can find out somehow the mystery. We'll keep reading. But I'm talking about what? Christ and the what? The church, let me give you one more. Colossians 1, 25 through 27. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The what? Mystery, he says it again, that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to who? The saints, the church, the New Testament. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that's abundantly clear. The scripture clearly says that the knowledge of the church was not only considered a mystery, but how many times did he say, and the people of the past, including Daniel and the Old Testament writers, they had what? No knowledge of it, right? Can we agree on that? And we're just letting the scripture speak for itself. So that's the next question. Then Then how in the world could Daniel be referring to the church in the passage dealing with the 70th week prophecy, which includes the seven-year tribulation? How could he be talking about the church when, listen, the church wasn't even in existence yet, and he had no knowledge of the church. He can't. It's impossible. Listen, just as the church had an abrupt beginning after the 69th week, right? What started after Jesus made his triumphal entry in Jerusalem, fulfilling the first 69 of the 70th week prophecy? The church was born. So just as the church had an abrupt beginning after the conclusion of the 69th week, So the church will have an abrupt removal at the rapture prior to the beginning of the 70th week, the seven-year tribulation. And last time I checked, not guilty of escapism, uh, it just happens to fit the pre-trib scenario. Go figure. Again, okay? The third reason why the final week of Daniel's 70th week prophecy has nothing to do with the church, again, is the audience, right? And we've seen a little bit of that already in Daniel chapter 9. Okay, the 70th week is not dealing with the church. It's dealing with Daniel, the Jewish people, okay? But there's two major audiences when you look at the scriptures, plural, dealing with those who are going to be in the seven-year tribulation. And neither one of them has to do with the church, okay? In fact, the first one, again, is the Jewish people. Now, I want to bring up, believe it or not, it's not just Revelation. It's not just Daniel chapter 9. But there's other passages in the scripture that speak of the seven-year tribulation. And when you look at that, Shocker, it says it's going to be Israel who's going to be in that time frame, unfortunately, because they've rejected Jesus Christ now as their Messiah. And anybody that's done that, guess what? You're going to be left behind in the seven-year tribulation. Now, let me give you just one of those passages to show you what I'm talking about, right? But it's very consistent in the scripture. Who's going to be in there? And it's not the church. Jeremiah 34 through 7, speaking of that time frame, says this. These are the words the Lord spoke concerning who? Israel and who? Judah, he tells you right out of the gates. Who's going to be in there? This is what the Lord says. Cries of fear are heard, terror, not peace. Ask and see. Can a man bear children? 
Well, then why do I see every strong man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Every face turned deathly pale. It's going to be horrible. As Jesus said, the seven-year tribulation, the final week of Daniel 7 prophecy, is the worst time in the history of mankind. So horrible that unless God shortened the time frame, i.e. kept it to seven years, the entire human race would be destroyed. And that's what Jeremiah is saying. He said, man, they just, even the strongest of men are acting like a bunch of uh, like women in labor. You're freaking out, right? And he says this, how awful that day will be. Nothing will be like it. And listen, it'll be a time of trouble for who? Jacob, but he will be saved out of it, okay? So again, notice to whom the Lord is speaking about this horrible time frame. He clearly says, it's what? It's Israel, it's Judah. Last time I checked, that's not the church. In fact, he's very specific about it. He said, it's Jacob's trouble, not the church's trouble, right? I mean, he didn't say, hey, it's a time of Paul's doom. No, it's going to be Peter's demise. You don't want to be there. It's Ananias' agony. Oh, he doesn't say that. He said, listen, it's not the church's trouble. It's Jacob's trouble, okay? It is a Jewish name for a Jewish people for a Jewish time, not the church. And the reason why, as we'll see, God has the Jewish people in there is he's being consistent. Uh, Can Jewish people get saved today and avoid it? Yeah. Can any non-Jewish person, a Gentile, get saved and avoid it? Yeah, which is basically us here today. But guess what? They're rejecting him. So just like anybody else on the planet, God's being consistent. They're going to be in there. But what we see is God will use the seven-year tribulation to uh, refine Israel. He's going to redeem Israel. He's going to fulfill the promises he made way back to the patriarchs and even King David, again, that somebody from the lineage of David, the Messiah, Jesus, is literally going to rule and reign on the planet and bring in everlasting righteousness. He's going to renovate the planet to our Garden of Eden-like conditions. There's going to be peace. Has that happened yet? No, so it's still future. Right? That's why you don't want to give into the lie called replacement theology that the church has replaced Israel. That's not only a lie from the pit of hell, but it makes God out to look like a liar because God is not done fulfilling his promises to the Jewish people. Well, guess what? That's one of the, not just audiences, but the purposes of the seven-year tribulation. God uses the seven-year tribulation as the disciplinary rod to get the people, the Jewish people, to finally realize, oh, wow, we just made a big mistake. We made a deal with the Antichrist but the one and only real Christ is Jesus Christ. And praise God, that happens. That's a good thing. And then, but the bad news is, Zechariah 13, the Antichrist goes after two-thirds of them and slaughters them. Jewish people, another Holocaust coming, unfortunately. But he sovereignly protects one-third, Revelation 12. Why? Because he's not done with them. Because the promises through Jesus Christ are coming. The good news is, if you get saved right now, you get to be a part of the church we get to go up in heaven while that's going on. We come back with Jesus, Revelation 19, from heaven, and we get to rule and reign with him, okay, in the millennial kingdom, okay? But right now, the Bible says that the Jewish people are under a, listen, temporary blindness, a temporary hardness. God is not done with them, okay? Because, again, they're going to be in the seven-year tribulation, and he's going to use that event to wake them up. That's why Paul says this. Right, We've seen this before, Romans 11, 25 through 27. And Paul says to the church, I don't want you to be ignorant of this, what? Here it is, mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. And actually, that's what, again, what's called replacement theology, which is really false theology, false teaching. They actually violate this scripture, that they say that the church has replaced Israel. Well, guess what? That's conceited. And that's what Paul says, don't do it. Don't get conceited. Don't get a big head acting like God's done with the Jewish people, right? He's not. 
And that's what he goes on and says. Israel has experiencing a complete hardening. The church has replaced them. He's done with them. He's written them off. They're doomed. And this, oh, I'm sorry, wrong translation. Uh, what's it say? Israel has experienced a hardening in what? In part, until when? The fullness of the Gentiles come in, right? I don't know who that last Gentile is that gets saved, right? Uh, but guess what? That's why we're still here. But when that last person gets saved in this time frame of the church, we're out of here. And then when we're out of here at the rapture, what happens? God's eyesight goes back on Israel. Why? Because he's not done with them. And he's going to use the seven-year tribulation to wake them up. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from who? Jacob, again, Israel. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Again, God's not done with the Jewish people right now. They're under a temporary blindness or a temporary hardness. But when the church departs at the rapture, i.e. the fullness of the Gentiles, God's eyesight goes back on them. He's going to deliver them. He's going to confirm the covenant. He's going to fulfill all the promises that he promised way back when. The seven-year tribulation is the very instrument that God fulfills those promises and restores Israel. Right? One guy puts it this way. He says, listen, Israel has moved into a period of blindness and estrangement from God until a point in time called the fullness of the Gentiles, or in other words, the church age. But God has not finally and completely cast away the Jewish people. The seven-year tribulation will be a time of conversion for Israel, Okay, a time of great spiritual revival. It's going to remark the conversion uh, of the Jewish people and accepting Jesus finally as their Messiah. And and this is why the book of Matthew, whose primary audience is the Jews, Jesus explains to his Jewish followers what it will be like in the seven-year tribulation. As we saw before, Matthew 24, what's the context? Jesus is going down chronologically, answering their question, Jewish people, in the seven-year tribulation, what's going to happen all the way to the sign of the end of the age of your coming, his second coming at the end. The context is the Jewish people. Also, Revelation 12 describes a woman who gives birth and has to flee the persecution in the seven-year tribulation. Well, the context is, guess who that woman is? It's Israel. Again, the battle of Armageddon is what? The world against Israel. And we saw Zechariah 13, two-thirds of the Jewish people are going to be killed. Uh, These texts show that the tribulation is meant for the redemption of the Jewish people. And so you're asking yourself the question, well, why? Why are the Jewish people so uh, 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 the object of persecution during this time? Well, number one, Satan hates the Jewish people for giving the world the scriptures, and hello, Jesus, Messiah. Number two, Satan's trying to thwart, and you can't thwart the plans of God. Read the scripture. He's God. He's trying to thwart his promises to the Jewish people as well. Secondly, the Jewish people have to be so desperate that they're finally brought low to accept Jesus as their Messiah and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so the seven-year tribulation is Israel's time of redemption and also, we'll see in a second, God's punishment upon the wicked. The church does not fit in this scenario. We're left out on purpose. We are caught up. We are removed before that time begins. The seven-year tribulation, therefore, has nothing to do with the church but the purification of Israel, a time of, listen, God's dealing with his ancient people prior to their entrance into the promised millennial kingdom when the Messiah from the lineage of David will rule in inflexible righteousness, I believe Isaiah says, over the whole planet, right? Has nothing to do with the church. It can't be, right? They're one of the big audiences. Now, that's just one of the audience. The other audience, when you look at the scriptures about the seven-year tribulation, is these guys, the Gentile nations. Those who just still, even to this day, reject the good news of Jesus Christ 
that you could be set free from this horrible time frame, let alone hell itself. But they say, no, we want to have nothing to do with you. Well, guess what? You're going to be left behind, right? And, and this is what's strange is because even though you'll have people say, okay, I agree with you, Pastor Billy. The scripture teaches that one of the audiences of the seven-year tribulation is the Jewish people. The Bible's very clear about that. Old and New Testament, that's when God's going to redeem them. He's going to restore them. He's going to have a remnant, a one-third remnant, and, and he's going to fulfill his promises for the millennial kingdom that happens at the end. I, I, I get that. But they actually would say this. They still, it's that tribulation wannabe thing. They still want to squeeze the church in that time frame. And they say, well, it, if you read the Bible, it doesn't just mention the Jewish people, you know, with words like Judah and Israel and the temple and, and, and Jacob and all that stuff. Uh, there's other people mentioned in there, and that's the church. No, it's not. Not even close. In fact, we know it can't be the church, okay? In fact, God's very clear. The people who are going to be in the seven-year tribulation experiencing his wrath, and by the way, stop there again. We saw in previous studies, is the church appointed unto God's wrath? No, the, very, the scripture is very clear. We are saved from, not appointed unto, we are rescued from God's wrath. So how could we be in there? Rather, the people that are in the seven-year tribulation experiencing God's wrath is the second audience. There's the Jewish people. The second one is the Gentile nations who've rejected Christ. They've been left behind. In fact, God calls them a specific title, and it's not the church. The phrase he uses is called the inhabitants of the earth. Is that our identity? We're citizens of heaven. When the rapture happens, where do we go? Heaven. It's a polar opposite identity. In fact, let me give you some obvious proof that we are not these people called the inhabitants of the earth, contextually, right? Revelation 6.10, they called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the who? Inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. These are the tribulation saints, the Gentiles who get saved after the rapture. You should have got saved today and avoid the whole thing, right? But then, But there's even a distinction there. How could you say that's the church when that's not the church, but then you want to, if you're saying the inhabitants of the earth is the church, then why is the, it basically saying the church is judging the church? That doesn't make sense, you know, because it's not the church. Revelation 8, 13, as I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in loud voice, whoa, 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 and he's not riding a horse, by the way, horrible bad times, the what? Inhabitants of the earth. Why is that such a woeful time? Because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. So when you get saved, that's what Jesus says. Whoa, 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 you're going to be judged. You're doomed. No, praise God, Jesus is taking our judgment. And, and Christians, you know, they get this confused, unfortunately. The Bible does say that when, when we die or the, the rapture, we, we Christians are headed for a judgment. But it's not a judgment for salvation. It's not a judgment of punishment. It's called the Bema judgment. And it's a judgment, basically, reward time. Like right now, we should really get this now because basically what a Bama judgment was is, is, is dishing out rewards. Like right now, the Olympics are going on, right? And so when they bring the top three people up there on that little three-tiered thing, right? And I don't know about you, but I, was, I almost was brought to tears that uh, these New World Order people allowed them to take their masks off for 30 seconds to take a selfie. <laughs> They're so gracious, these overlords. Yeah, whatever. Okay, but anyway, so w- when they get up there on the podium... Right, We all know, because when they ran that race, you know, like the Bible says, we need to run the race for Christ. When they ran that race and they finished, right, the reason why they put them up there on those three-tiered levels is, you're doomed, you guys are going to jail, we're going to take you, we're going to kill you. <laughs> no, it's what? It's reward time. 
That's what we're headed for. We're not headed for judgment. Uh, We're not worried about our salvation. It's reward time and what you did on this earth as a Christian until he came and got you. So again, whoa, whoa, whoa to the inhabitants. That can't be the church, right? He says, because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. Revelation 11, 10, the who? Inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them, the two witnesses, and will listen, celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had listened, tormented those who live on the earth. Now, wait a second. Even if you wanted to flirt with the idea that the church is in this time, we wouldn't be doing this. These inhabitants of the earth, we wouldn't respond like this. The two witnesses are declaring God's righteous decree, his word. And so is that something we would consider a torment? That's a torment. And then when they get killed, we were going, yeah, kill those preachers. I hope that's not your attitude. Right? So, so even if you want to say this is a church and it's not, even if you want to say we're in the seven-year tribulation and we're not, it can't be the church. None, none of it fits. Revelation 13, 8, all inhabitants of the earth will what? Worship the beast. Well, is the church going to worship the Antichrist? Of course not. So how can you just say the inhabitants of the earth is the other audiences to the church? It's nuts. All those whose names have what? Not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Last time I checked, the scripture teaches that when you get saved, where is your name written? Lamb's book of life. So how could you say these inhabitants of the earth of the church when they don't have their name? It doesn't make sense because it's not true. They're not the same audience. Revelation 13, 12, he exercised all authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. Revelation 13, 14, because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image and honor the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Are we going to worship the image of the Antichrist? Are we going to bow down before him? Uh, no, of course not. Again, as we saw before, if we were left behind, who'd be the first ones pointing out the Antichrist? Yeah, that's what we saw last week. That's why we're out of here because he can't do what he's going to do with us truth tellers poking him out. Okay, that's why we got to be gone. Revelation 17, 1 through 2, uh, 2. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come and I'll show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth, there it is again, were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. This is Babylon. This is the one world religion that literally is being spread across as we speak across the planet. Is that something that we promote? Of course not. We can't. So again, different. One more. Revelation 17, 8. The beast, which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because he once was, now is not, and uh, it will yet come, okay? But again, as you can see, this is the second audience that's mentioned here, okay? You got the first audience, you got the Jewish people, right? And now you have another audience here that is called the inhabitants of the earth. And again, you clearly see that it's not the church. It can't be the church. Impossible contextually. But on top of that, okay, biblically, if God wants to speak of the church, then guess what word he will use? Church. And this is what we saw before. The word church is actually mentioned in the book of Revelation repeatedly, but only in chapters one through three. In fact, it's mentioned the word church when God wants to speak about us in the book of Revelation. He calls us for who we are. The church, ecclesia, group of called out ones, the bride of Christ, right? He mentions us 19 times, the word church in Revelation chapter one through three. But what did we see before? Chapters 4 forward, chapters 18, the time frame of the seven-year tribulation, how many times does he mention or use the word church? 
Zero. Why? Because it's not by chance. The reason why the word church is absent is because the church is absent. So again, another reason why we can't be the inhabitants of the earth, because even in Revelation, when God wants to speak of us, he uses our word church. So the whole thing completely falls apart. It's not the church as all. In fact, on top of that, uh, the church, when we're raptured, where do we go? We go to heaven. And that's why there's an obvious, clear distinction between these identities, all right? Those who are left behind are called inhabitants of Walmart. Inhabitants of New York's... In, what's the word to use there? Nothing's by chance in scripture. These people that were left behind are inhabitants of the earth, okay? But the church is now what? Inhabitants of heaven. In fact, our identity is citizens of heaven, right? So how could we be the same? Because we're not. You got two audiences in the seven-year tribulation, the Jewish people, the unbelieving, rebellious, wicked Gentile nations, which is basically anybody that's not a Jew, and your identity is still identified with this world. You're an inhabitant of the earth. Now, even more clear than that, uh, there's a distinction between the inhabitants of the earth and the church Back in, what we saw was the direct promise from Jesus Christ in Revelation that the church will not be in the seven-year tribulation. And that's back in Revelation 3.10, right? Let's take a look at that one again uh, from, from Jesus. This is his promise, right? Many people say, there's not one verse in the Bible that says that uh, the church is spared from it. Well, here you go, right? Revelation is about as blunt as you can get. Revelation 3.10, we saw this before. Jesus speaking to the church, he says, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will what? Here's your promise from Jesus. I will keep you from what? The hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole world to test the church. No, those who what? There it is again, who live on the earth. So how can you say that's the same audience when right here in Revelation 3.10, he's speaking to the church and he promises, and it's obviously the seven-year tribulation. It's not an hour of trial. It's a season of trial that's going to come upon a local community with a local earthquake. No, the whole, if that's not the seven-year tribulation, I don't know what is. And people say, well, what kind of promise? That? What do you mean, what kind of a promise is that? We're promised that we're going to experience hard times here now, especially if you live for Jesus Christ. I've never said that we're going to get out of here uh, at the rapture prior to experiencing even serious persecution. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. But I haven't said, oh, it's guaranteed. I don't know. But I'll tell you what, Jesus said, but you know what? As bad as it might get here on earth now, you'll never be a part of hell on earth in the seven-year tribulation. I promise you that, right? That's a, that, what do you mean, what kind of a promise? That's a wonderful promise. And it helps me in my trials today. At least I'm not going there, right? But he says it too, to test who? Those who live on the earth. You, the church, those who live on the earth, exact same phrase uh, that's used there. In fact, it's not just the exact same phrase. Uh, it's the exact same Greek word. Revelation 3.10 and all the other ones we saw, inhabitants of the earth, it's the exact same Greek word for emphasis, right? That is the same audience and neither has anything to do with the church. It's the Greek word kaokeo, okay? And it literally means this. It's very emphatic. It says there, so the Greek word kaokeo means to, listen, be those who have settled down. Oikeo, house or home. Cat or kata, down, down home, right? Down home cooking. That's not what it means. I know what you're thinking. I know we dealt with North Carolina and sweet tea and Zaxby's evil, but don't go there. <laughs> but it literally means, that's what it means. Down home, your home is down here, right? That's literally what it means. But it's not just that. It's those who have settled down upon the earth. Listen, those who have identified themselves with it, the earth. 
The word conveys the idea also of permanency, a complete identification with this world. So guess what? It can't be the church. Why? Because the scripture says we are strangers and pilgrims on this earth and are what? We are now citizenship. We have it where? In heaven. Completely two different audiences. It can't be the same. It's impossible. So based on that alone, you can't say that the other audience, other than the Jewish people, that talks about the inhabitants of the earth, that's the, that's the church. No, it's not. It can't be on a multitude of levels, right? Again, I encourage you to stop being a tribulation wannabe and squeezing the church in the time frame that the scripture is very emphatic and promises from Jesus himself. You're not going to be there. Which last time I checked, no wonder it's called the blessed hope, right? There is no hope if I'm going in that time frame, right? So again, that's it. Rather, the church is promised, listen, to be a heaven dweller not an earth dweller, right? In fact, one guy, he puts it this way. He says, listen, it's evident that the tribulation concerns not only the Jewish people, but also concerns God's judgment upon the Christ rejecting rejecting Gentile nations. And you see this throughout. Who's the audience? Babylon. Babylon and all the what? Nations of the earth that drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. She herself will be utterly burned with fire for strong is the Lord God who judges her. The cities of the nations shall fall, after which Satan shall be bound that should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be ended. God's judgment likewise falls upon the individual wicked, the kings of the earth, the great, the rich, the mighty, every bondman, every free man and slave. It falls upon those who blaspheme the name of God and who do not give him glory. Wicked men, godless nations, suffering Israel, these are the audiences of the seven-year tribulation. And that's why one looks in vain, if they're honest with the scriptures, for the church of Jesus Christ during this time. It is his body, and you only see the church again until Revelation 19, and there she is seen as the heavenly bride of Christ when he returns to earth to make his enemies his footstools. She is seen returning with him. And we get to be a part of the millennial kingdom with the remnant Jewish people and any Gentile that might have gotten saved that's still alive at that time. But that's the lesson, right? You should have got saved today and you could avoid the whole thing, Jew or Gentile. That's why we got to get the gospel out. Jew or Gentile, come on, you don't have to. You know, it's really sad. Think about that. We've talked about this before, but it's really going to happen. A second Jewish Holocaust is coming to this planet. Isn't that crazy? Well, guess what? You know what the best thing you could do for a Jewish person? Tell them about Jesus. Because they won't have to be a part of it. Any Gentile, your worst enemy, you don't want to have them in this time frame. Well, guess what? There's good news. That's why it's called the good news. There's a way out through Jesus Christ. You see, God's very consistent. He will still, even in this time frame, isn't it just like our God? He will still offer his mercy even in the midst of the judgment. We're not there. But these two audiences, the Jewish people and the wicked, rebellious Gentile nations, they will have an opportunity to respond. Now, the Jewish people, God will use the Antichrist behavior, good news, bad news, to wake them up and go, oh, boy, they, we just made a deal with the Antichrist three and a half years ago. Now it's in the middle. He says he's God. We can't, oh, we got duped. And they call upon the name of the Lord, finally. But it comes at a price. And the same thing with the Gentiles. We see the 144,000 male Jewish evangelists. And lots of Gentiles get saved. That's who those people are crying out for vengeance. We'll see here in a second. It's the tribulation saints. That's not the church. That's the Gentiles, the second audience who get saved after being left behind. 
And then we even have the two witnesses that the earth dwellers were rejoicing over. Well, the gospel goes forth there. And then we even have the angel that flies through the, the world to give him the, the eternal gospel. So, so God's mercy still there is midst, in the midst of his judgment, and that's fantastic. The point is you should have gotten saved now. That's our urgency as the church, right? And, and don't kid yourself. We say this all the time. Yeah, you, know, you Christians disappear, I tell you what. You know, I, I, I'll know you're real, and I'll get saved then. Really? You won't get saved now when it's relatively easy to do so. But when your head is literally on the chopping block, you think you will? See, this is why you need to get saved now, because it's going to be a slaughter fest for anybody who turns to God, not just the Jewish people, but any Gentiles who turn to him during that time. Revelation 6, 9 through 10, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the souls, those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, mega crodso, screaming it out. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Revelation 24, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, okay? And so that's the point. The point is, get saved now. Scripture says we're ambassadors for Christ, right? We have the ministry and been given the privilege of the ministry of reconciliation, that right now through Jesus Christ, God is willing to reconcile you, bring you back, adopt you into his forever family, and he'll rescue you from this hour of trial that's going to come and test those who are still identified with the earth. The point is basically what we're saying to people is, listen, you need to change your identity now through Jesus Christ. You need to become a heaven dweller, not an earth dweller. Because if your identity doesn't change very quickly, you're going to be left behind. And the Bible says, you don't want to be there. Because it starts off with a false peace, the white horse rider. All those nasty Christians restraining all the things we wanted to do, all this behavior we were doing, they kept saying, that's wicked, that's not right, that's ungodly, you can't do that, you shouldn't do that. They're all gone. (laughs) And now, look, we have a world leader who's brought peace to the Middle East. He made a covenant with Israel. This one actually seems to have worked. And the Bible says that false peace is short-lived because, bang, shortly after that, the second horse rider comes, the red horse rider, and global war breaks across the planet, and it's downhill from there. You don't want to be there at that time, as this video shows. We'll close in prayer after this.
The whole world is watching. The course of human history has changed today. This is not a test. This is an emergency broadcast transmission. We're going to stay on the air for as long as possible. We've seen heavily armed forces being deployed. Every man make himself and his country proud. Be brave. Be brave. Be brave. Boy, that's the question, isn't it? What's the biblical rule? Anything that we can dream up through Hollywood and animation, as crazy and freaky as it is, based on biblical texts, 
still pales in comparison to the actual reality. When the church is gone at the rapture prior to this, there is no restraint. Remember, we're the restraining influence. And when the restraint's gone, they're going to bring out every weapon in their arsenal, I think even biological, that will add to the famine and the plagues mentioned. Every weapon that we've never heard of, they got, they're going to unleash it all. This planet will descend into darkness like you can't even dream. But we were warned, Jesus said, you don't want to be there. It's going to be the worst time in the history of mankind. You don't want to be there. You need to change your identity in him. You need to become a heaven dweller, not an inhabitant of the earth or an earth dweller. And you will receive his promise. I will keep you from that hour. If you're not saved, this is not a joke. The rapture is imminent. It could happen today. And you'll be left behind and you're going in there. But you don't have to. If you would call upon the name of Jesus Christ, Ask him to forgive you of all your sins. The Bible says if you confess Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, you will be saved. Change your identity today. Amen. Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple of things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death. In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying, okay? How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand, okay? Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy, even His name is holy. Hey, folks, let's be honest. If you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ uh, has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's His standard. Uh, uh, even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing. Uh, it's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? 
You still think you're going to get to heaven on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what did we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey, God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I, I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. And the scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step. To admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven. I need a Savior if we would admit that and then ask for the Savior to save us. That, that's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. The word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes that we've committed against Him and disqualified us, that disqualified us for heaven, right? And we've actually seen this work in real life. Uh, for instance, uh, there's been people who have committed crimes, gone to court, the gavel's been passed, the judges said, hey, listen, we all know you're guilty, uh, you even admit you're guilty, and uh, for your crimes, you're going to not just jail, you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty, and did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row? It's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor, can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done. You can't undo it. Not because of they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy... The person who has the authority can give them a pardon and they can go free. And did you know it's actually on historical record that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty and they've refused to take it. And so even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive His pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what He was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you could be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth he is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the grave and the Bible says you will be saved. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Gill Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.